Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products, such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that the Haunted UK podcast is now on coffee. If you love the show and want more content, such as bite-sized bonus episodes, horror and paranormal movie reviews, chances to get your hands on exclusive Haunted UK podcast merchandise courtesy of CDS Print and Design, as well as a free Haunted UK podcast sticker and much more, then get yourself over to Coffee and sign up to donate just £3 per month. That's KO-FI and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Coffee. Why not buy us one? And here's a shout out to an amazing listener who's done just that. I'd like to thank Melissa Oliveri for her incredibly generous donation to the show. This is Season 2 of the Haunted UK Podcast. In this season, we're going to cast our net far and wide to tell stories of UFOs, unsolved mysteries, strange creatures, unexplained disappearances, as well as further tales of ghosts, poltergeists and haunted locations. But before we dive in, why not make a note to listen to the following great podcast? Welcome to the mysterious world of the Skylark Bell. Our story begins on the outskirts of a small town called Pocket, where Margaret Phaeton, better known as Magpie, must connect a series of unexplained events, psychic visions, and century-old folktales before the mysterious silence hanging over the abandoned farm at Meadow Lane spreads to the entire town. The Skylark Bell is a fiction podcast in serial format, with new chapters every Friday, and bonus episodes that recount real-life paranormal experiences. Find The Skylark Bell on all major platforms and at theskylarkbell.com. I'm Melissa Oliveri. Thank you for listening. What happens when we die? Do we simply cease to exist? Or is there something else? Is there a possibility that the very element of our being, the thing that makes us who we are, personality, sense of humour, our traits, habits and our ability to process emotions, can somehow be transferred or picked up by a completely different person? Can the human mind, or soul, or consciousness live on after we die. 
This is episode 18 of the Haunted UK podcast, and this time we're going to delve into the phenomenon that is reincarnation. Regardless of whether you have a belief in religion, or if you fall on the side of atheism, What happens after we die is still a topic which continues to divide opinion. Many religions will paint the picture of a heaven-type place where we will eventually be reunited with the ones we have loved and lost. The scientific stance is that when your clock runs out of time, that is simply that. The end. You're either buried or cremated, and your time on Earth is over, never to be repeated. But can our conscious mind live on and, somehow, be absorbed by another human being? The Dalai Lama, when asked by scientist Carl Sagan what he would do if science could definitively disprove reincarnation, commented, If science can disprove reincarnation, Tibetan Buddhism would abandon reincarnation. But it's going to be mighty hard to disprove reincarnation. End quote. This rings true with religion and the entire belief in the paranormal and the supernatural, in that it's all down to perception. It's quite simply down to what we, as individuals, believe in. If your belief in your faith is solid, strong and unmoving, then there is no situation or individual who will change your mind. But with the possibility of reincarnation, Are there stories out there which put the argument forward that this has already happened and continues to happen today? Our first case begins in 1920, when John Pollock was born. Raised in Bristol and brought up as Church of England, he later converted to Catholicism when he married Florence, who was a member of the Salvation Army. She also converted to the Catholic faith. John was already a firm believer in the phenomenon of reincarnation after reading material in his pre-teen years that convinced him that this had happened on many occasions throughout history. John would also pray every night, asking God for evidence to reinforce to the church and to skeptics that reincarnation was in fact real. Florence, however, didn't share her husband's belief, choosing instead to take comfort that whatever happened in her life she would eventually be reunited with her loved ones in heaven. In 1946, Florence gave birth to their first daughter, Joanna. By this time in John and Florence's lives, they had built a small but quite successful grocery delivery business, which somewhat limited the time which they could spend with their daughter. Florence's mother would often help out looking after Joanna, which she thoroughly enjoyed leaving John and Florence to continue to concentrate on their business. After the family moved to Hexham in Northumberland, Florence gave birth to their second daughter, Jacqueline, in 1951. The girl's grandmother continued to help raise them both, and life seemed to be going well, with outsiders noting that the family dynamic seemed to be one that was happy and strong. As the sisters grew up together, they developed an incredibly close bond with each other, They would play and talk for hours on end every day and never seemed to tire of each other's company. When Jacqueline was three years old, she had an accident which left her with a scar and a slight depression above her right eye. The scar would also become more prominent and noticeable when the weather was cold, 
the physical remnants of this injury will become important later on in the story. Another unique physical feature on Jacqueline was a birthmark which was almost circular in shape that was on the left side of her waist. Both girls enjoyed acting in plays, which they would make up whilst at home, and would also dress up in costumes, which they would make themselves. Out of the two sisters, the eldest, Joanna, seemed the more dominant. Her parents and friends would notice that Joanna would exert a mothering influence over Jacqueline, but she was more than happy to play along, and never complained. One thing that Florence did find slightly disturbing was when Joanna would say that she had a regular premonition that she would never grow up. This would unfortunately become tragically true. On the 5th of May 1957, 51-year-old Marjorie Wynne climbed into her car and began driving towards Hexham High Street. Five years previously, her husband, an RAF group captain, had died, leaving Marjorie and her two daughters, Penelope 16 and Prudence 13, alone in the home which they had recently moved to, Horsley House. Marjorie had just taken what she would hope to be an overdose of barbiturates with the full intention of killing herself. Deep depression had clouded Marjorie's life since her husband's death, and to her, even though she had two daughters, life wasn't worth living anymore as both of them had been taken into care. Meanwhile, on Hexham High Street, Joanna, Jacqueline and their friend Anthony Layden were walking hand in hand to church, completely unaware of the events that were about to unfold. As Marjorie approached the high street, she began to speed up, mounting the pavement and hitting all three children. They never stood a chance. Both Joanne and Jacqueline were killed instantly. Anthony Layden died en route to hospital. In a cruel twist of fate, Marjorie Wynn's suicide attempt failed as she survived both the overdose and the crash. The newspapers covered the story extensively and a huge outpouring of sympathy was directed towards both families of the deceased children. The aftermath affected John and Florence Pollock in completely different ways. While Florence sank into a deep depression and tried her best not to think of the accident and her daughter's deaths, her husband turned to his faith. John would pray for hours every day, convinced that God had taken their daughters as an act of retribution for John asking for proof of reincarnation. He also claimed that whilst God's act of taking their children was cruel and unfair, he was 100% confident that both Joanna and Jacqueline would return to the family home in a process of being reborn into the family unit somehow. John began telling Florence that he felt the presence of the girls in the house, and it was at its most strongest in a room upstairs. He would spend hours in there praying, comforted in the thoughts that he was near his beloved daughters. As time slowly moved on, Florence quickly fell pregnant, and John was once again convinced that the amazing process of reincarnation would finally happen with the birth of twins. Florence was completely uninterested in this, as her doctor had confirmed that her pregnancy would result in a single birth. There was also no history in either of their families of twins. But on the 4th of October 1958, John was proved right, as Florence gave birth to twin girls, who they named Gillian and Jennifer. 
Almost straight away, both Florence and John began to notice eerie similarities between Joanna and Jacqueline and Gillian and Jennifer. One of the strangest was the fact that Jennifer had been born with not only one birthmark, but two. The first was in the exact same place where the accident with the bucket had scarred Jacqueline years ago, above her right eye. The second was on the left side of her waist, again, the exact same place as Jacqueline's. According to John, this was the proof that he'd been looking for. Joanna and Jacqueline had indeed been reincarnated as Gillian and Jennifer. When the twins were around nine months old, the family decided to relocate as the memories of what had happened were too painful. As the family settled into their new life and existence, more similarities began to surface. Gillian's body kept a more slender build, whereas Jennifer's was more stocky. This mirrored the sisters before them, with Joanna's build being slender and Jacqueline's being more stocky. The birthmark above Jennifer's right eye began to develop a more depressed look and also became much more noticeable in cold weather, exactly the same as Jacqueline's scar. Joanna's walking gait was quite noticeably splay-footed, a physical characteristic that both Gillian and Jennifer shared, but the similarities weren't just physical. Gillian and Jennifer began to display personality traits and behavioural patterns which were freakishly close to Joanna and Jacqueline. The twins quickly developed a strong bond with their maternal grandmother, who was instrumental in bringing up and taking care of the sisters before them. They were both inseparable and took a liking to acting out plays and dressing up. Gillian took on the mothering role out of the two, just as Joanna did over Jacqueline and displayed an age older than her actual years. As the twins grew older, more things began to jump out at their parents, relatives and friends. At the age of around three years old, John and Florence decided to bring a box of toys down from the attic. These toys had belonged exclusively to their deceased sisters, and neither of the twins had ever set eyes on them. But as soon as the box was opened and the toys laid out, something very strange began to happen. Almost at the same time, Gillian selected a doll that belonged to Joanna, and Jennifer did the same with a doll which belonged to Jacqueline. They both commented that these were presents from Santa Claus, which they had been. They then went on to divide the toys between each other as per their deceased sister's ownerships. There was no argument whatsoever with the distribution of these toys. The girls were also often overheard discussing the car accident which killed their sisters, with one particular conversation being overheard by their mother Florence. She reported that as they were playing, she witnessed Gillian holding Jennifer's head and telling her that she saw blood coming from her eyes because that's where the car hit you. As soon as Florence heard this, she knew exactly what they were talking about as this was an area of Jacqueline's head that had been bandaged to hide potentially upsetting injuries when her husband John went to identify both their bodies. In another noteworthy conversation, Gillian again took it upon herself to point at Jennifer's birthmark above her eye and tell her that that was the injury she had sustained from falling into a bucket. The list of strange coincidences just went on and on, Another incident took place 
when Jennifer saw her father in a smock which belonged to her mother. John had decided to dig it out of a cupboard and wear it while he was doing some decorating. This particular item of clothing hadn't been worn by Florence since the days of delivering milk and groceries years before the twins were born. But Jennifer immediately questioned her father why he was wearing Mummy's coat. Taken by surprise, John questioned his daughter, asking how she knew that this was Mummy's coat. Jennifer replied that Mummy wears it to deliver milk. As time went on, more and more people were taking an interest in what could potentially be the smoking gun in regards to the existence of reincarnation. Renowned reincarnation researcher Ian Stevenson decided to make contact with John and Florence with a view of interviewing them and also meeting the twins. Stevenson's first interview was conducted in 1963 at the family home and after interviewing both Florence and John, he then examined the twins for birthmarks and made notes. He would conduct a second interview in 1967, but before this, more strange coincidences began to surface. Both John and Florence hadn't been back to Hexham since their move when the twins were around nine months old. The twins certainly wouldn't have known anything about Hexham or its town layout, but when they were around four or five years old, the family decided to return to the town for a visit. John and Florence began walking towards a popular park, but hadn't mentioned anything of their destination to the girls. But before they could even get the park in sight, Gillian and Jennifer asked if they could go to the park and play on the swings. Both John and Florence were surprised by this request, as the twins knew nothing of the town, but in another strange turn of events, the girls actually led their parents directly through the streets to the exact location of the park. How would they have known where this location was when they'd never been there before? By this time, the twins had also developed a hatred and phobia of cars. The girls were ultra-cautious when crossing roads, but their mother just put this down to them seeing how cautious she was when she crossed roads. It wasn't until that, on one occasion, a car engine roared to life in an enclosed alleyway, amplifying the noise, that Florence and John realised just how afraid of cars the twins were. As the noise surprised the girls, they immediately grabbed a hold of each other, closed their eyes, and said with real terror in their voices, quote, The car, the car, it's coming for us. End quote. After the 1967 interview with the family, Ian Stevenson continued to stay in touch and visited them again in 1978. By this time, the twins were 20 years old and had largely completely forgotten about their past life memories. They even both displayed an air of slight scepticism, but did accept the opinions of their parents that they were both reincarnated from their deceased sisters before them. The twins went on to live normal lives, with little recollection at all about the fuss that their alleged reincarnation had caused. But could all of this simply be a case of the twins' parents, especially their father John, filling their heads with huge amounts of information about their deceased sisters, Joanna and Jacqueline? It's a proven fact that if you repeat something enough times to someone, they will retain some, if not all, of what is said. 
It's only the same as an obscure fact that you may hear on a television documentary being absorbed by your memory when you're not really aware of it. Only then to be able to recall it when something triggers that memory. Were these past lives inadvertently implanted into the twins by constant information which their subconscious minds stored and then replayed when the triggers were activated? But that doesn't explain the coincidence of both birthmarks on Jennifer's body, being in the exact same place as her deceased sister Jacqueline. It's all down to what you believe. Before we continue, here's a message from another great podcast. Oh, hi there. This is Kate. And I'm Dominic. And we are your hosts of Shitting Bricks, the podcast. Every week, we'll bring you an episode of What Makes People Shit Bricks. Is it a fear of death? Deep water? Running out of wine? Cannibalism? We take a warp look at these topics using examples from history that are the epitome of some scary shit. You can find us on all the regular podcast streaming services like Apple, Spotify, and Google for exclusive content including behind-the-scenes nuggets, links to weekly topics, and maybe even merch in the future. Head to Shitting Bricks Podcast on Instagram and YouTube. But for now, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it. And now, it's back to the show. We now move from Northumberland to Northampton, and the amazing story of Jenny Cockell. From around the age of just four years old, Jenny would speak about strange dreams involving people who she didn't recognize and who would always seem distant, but one particular person would always seem more real, more solid, more compelling. A woman named Mary. The older she got, the more detailed this dream became until she could finally see a whole family in their home. It was in a rural location, which again she didn't recognize, but she had a strange feeling that this house and family was in Ireland. Her dreams or visions began to piece together and show her the life of a family in the 1930s, with children sometimes playing and having fun with their mother, and other times in sadness at the sight of their mother very sick and bedridden. In this particular state of the vision, Jenny claimed that she could actually feel the pain that this poor woman had experienced. As Jenny was advancing through school, she began drawing maps of the village and the surrounding area where she felt that the family and her visions were based. She decided to try and track down the location of the house and its surroundings from her visions and compare them to the maps that she'd drawn. She would study maps of Ireland over and over again, trying to pin down the name of the place where she felt that these dreams were taking place. For some inexplicable reason, she was drawn to Malahide. Jenny was able to recall quite a lot of information about this family, but it was the mother figure, Mary, who she felt the most powerful connection to. For instance, she knew that Mary had seven children, and died shortly after the birth of her eighth. She knew the name of the place where she died, the Rotunda Hospital, and she even knew that Mary was just 32 years old when she passed away. It wasn't long before Jenny felt that it was Mary who she was in a past life. 
and it was her responsibility to find out if all of her children ended up living safe and happy lives after her death. This was because there was a dark cloud in the household. Mary's husband was not only a violent man to her, but also to their children. In her visions, Jenny would often feel the beatings that her husband would deal out to her, and on many occasions her children would try to step in between them to help shield her from the abuse. But she would always protect her children and take whatever was coming to her. Jenny was tremendously upset by the suffering that Mary and her children had suffered, and on top of all this she knew nothing of what happened to her children after she had died. So after many years of keeping all of the visions, dreams, notes and drawings to herself, she decided to find her long-lost family. She first started by ordering a map of the Malahide area from a local bookshop. When it was delivered, she took the drawings which she had made as a child and compared them. To her astonishment, they were an exact match. To Jenny, this was more evidence that she was connected to this family by more than just dreams and visions. In a bold move, she decided to try hypnosis to help her dive deeper into what she was now convinced were repressed memories of a previous existence. Jenny recalled that the hypnosis helped sharpen the memories and make them more focused and more understandable. She saw a village church in great detail and sketched it out. She also saw her former self, Mary, standing on a jetty waiting for a boat to come into shore with a man and child on board. She even described the clothes that she was wearing. It was now time for the next step in her journey, to actually visit Malahide and to try and track down the places that she'd seen, drawn and described. Taking her first steps in Malahide, Jenny felt immediately comfortable and set about beginning her journey. She managed to find the church she had drawn, a match. She then found the jetty which had seen herself standing on, another match. In fact, the whole general layout of the town map which she had drawn was a match. Jenny needed to find someone in Malahide that may have links to the family in her visions, or better still, an actual relative. She made inquiries and left her details with multiple contacts, and sure enough, not long after she returned to England, she received a letter from an old man back in Malahide. The letter gave details of the mother, Mary. Her full name was Mary Sutton, and it also gave details of what happened to the children after she died. They were all sent to an orphanage except one. This was the breakthrough she needed. She managed to get a copy of Mary Sutton's death certificate, which also matched the age at which Jenny felt she had died, 32. And from there, the name of an orphanage, which gave her the first names of the children. After more searching, and with help of an article published from an Irish newspaper, Jenny finally had a phone number belonging to the eldest child, Sonny. The first phone call was a nerve-wracking experience. Jenny explained to Sonny why she was calling, that she felt that she was the reincarnation of his mother, Mary Sutton, that she had had these visions, feelings and dreams throughout her life, that she knew the town, the church, the jetty. 
Sonny didn't know how it was possible that all of this could be true, but it was the description of the jetty, the boat and the child on board which finally convinced him. The child was Sonny himself. In his opinion, nobody could have known this. Sonny also confirmed that his father, Mary's husband, was indeed a very cruel and violent man who was only there out of convenience, whereas his mother genuinely loved and cherished her children. He also told Jenny that he was the only child who remained at the family home with his father. After this huge breakthrough, Jenny felt that it was her mission to try and find as many of the surviving children and, if possible, bring them back together. Months of hard work and research went into this seemingly impossible task, but little by little, one by one, Jenny managed to find every single one of the remaining Sutton children. In the early 90s, John, Christopher, Frank, Phyllis, Betty and Sonny were all gathered together at Betty's house for the first time in 61 years. In a strange twist of fate, it turned out that both Phyllis and Betty had been living within 15 minutes of each other for over 40 years. Apart from being there to catch up on all the time they'd lost, they were also there to meet Jenny, the woman who claimed to be the reincarnation of their deceased mother. But would they believe her? Apparently, they did. All of the remaining Sutton children all fully believed that it was God's will to enable Mary to use Jenny Cockell to finally reunite them. Looking at this from a more sceptical viewpoint, it should be noted that Jenny's dreams or visions couldn't furnish her with the family's surname or any of the names of the children. The town Malahide was only found because of a roughly drawn map But are these criticisms unfair? Again, coming back to the point which was raised in regard to the Pollock twins' reincarnation, it's all down to what you believe. And even if you or I don't believe Jenny's story, what cannot be denied is the fact that she managed to reunite a family after 61 years. She managed to give them something precious. Time. And if you'd like to hear how reincarnation may have affected the recording of this episode, then stay listening after the end of the theme where you'll find a blooper reel. More content like this could be available to subscribers on Coffee for just £3 per month. I'd love to get to at least 30 subscribers, which would enable me to focus on things like merchandise, bonus episodes, and more blooper reels specifically for Coffee subscribers. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker... Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rapidly rising, and that's all down to you. So a huge thanks to all of you. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a second season. 
Huge thanks again to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is another request to all you listeners out there. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on our Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Halesowen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care. where we will eventually be reunited with the ones we have loved and lost. And I actually can't read the rest of the script because I've just put it off the side of the screen. What happens after we die is still a topic which continues to divide opinion. (laughs) Did you hear my throat go then? My God, it's uh, it's always on its way out now. (laughs) I'm going to have to see somebody about some medicine. (laughs) 
what happens after we die is still a topic which continues to vi- to divide. It continues to divide. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm making a lot of words, you know what I mean? I can't, oh, shut it! Many religions will paint the picture of a heaven-type place where we will eventually be reunited with the ones we have loved and lost. The scientific stance will paint the picture of me reading the script over and over and over again. It's Jeremy Vine on BBC Radio 2. Do you continue to do things again and again and again? If so, call me. But with the possibility of reincarnation, are there stories out there which put the argument forward that Thornwood? Thornwood? Ah, you know, isn't it? Oh, you know, marvellous. Oh, you know, T-shirts for golfers, you know, jumpers out there in the park, you know, cold. Oh, fall over, witch hazel, stings, you know. Oh, isn't it? You know, marvellous. Our first case begins in 1920, when John Pollock was born. Raised in Bristol and brought up as Church of England, he later converted to Catholicism. You know, it's, uh, it's a strange religion. You know, you, uh, you know, you take your pants off and start waving them over your head, and you spray tomato ketchup all over your own uh, genitalia. That's, uh, that's what it's all about, you know. <laughs> but with the possibility of reincarnation, are there stories out there which put the argument forward? This is. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's, uh, how can I put this? He's cocked up again. In 1946, Florence gave birth to their, 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 there are three, uh, sexes, if you like. There's male, there's female, and there's dirty. Five years previously, her husband, an RAF group captain, had died, leaving Marjorie and her two daughters, Penelope 16 and Prudence 13, alone in the home which they had recently... <laughs> so, here we are on Top Gear and we're going to talk about electric cars. Well, they've got their positives and their negatives. So battery jolt for you there. The newspapers covered the story extensively, and a huge outpouring of sympathy was directed towards both families of the deceased children. The aftermath affected the John and Florence... What? what, I I tell you what. What I've done here is I've absolutely cocked the bloody script up and read something that's completely and utterly irrelevant and stupid. (laughs) I should be a scriptwriter. I should work with Steven Seagal. I'm reading the wrong thing. My God, I'm reading the wrong part. (laughs) I've gone totally mad. He's gone mad. Mad! It's alive! Alive! One of the most strangest was that... That's the fact. It's the... I tell you what, there's a lot of almost swearing going on. It's like almost singing, you know. That's what a few people try and do. They go, well, if I could talk to the animals, walk with... It just bloody talk sings, don't it? As the t- Hi there, it's Cliff. Anyone for tennis? My balls. As the twins grew older... As the twins grew older, did you, did you hear how I said twins? Bloody hell, Dave. You right, Denise? Yeah. As time went on, more and more people were taking an... In- mm. My God, I've almost choked again. My God, 
Yeah, Lois. I, uh, I could talk Italian. After the 1967... <laughs> I remember the day that I was <laughs> trying to read a story. You know, it's Ronnie Corbett here. And uh, I kept getting it wrong. And I spoke to the producer, and he said, Look, Ronnie, we're going to have to cut the monologues. Bugger.